here. Welcome to our guests, those who are viewing online, any guests here uh, in person. So glad you guys are here, able to come be here in person. We look forward to the day when we're praying for the day when we can all be together physically as well. Lord, may it be soon. So we'll be in Exodus uh, 33 to 34. We're going through this book. We're almost done. Um, one more message after this. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What is the meaning of life? What is the secret of the universe? What would you answer? And I know some of you are going to say 42 because you've watched Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But that is not the answer. Um, this is a question that stumps philosophers, disturbs polite conversation, and perplexes everyone from the least to the greatest. What is life about? Well, we have an answer. And we have an answer in story form in God's Word. Actually, God's Word is mostly in story form. And it tells us something about how we learn, uh, that God has preserved truths in story form, form for us. And so the answer we'll find today in chapters 33 to 34, as God answers this question through the experience of God's people. And just by way of quick, very quick review, we've been following the story in Exodus, God's people have been delivered from Egypt, slavery in Egypt. Uh, God rescues them, they wander in the desert, uh, God provides for them, uh, and then recently, uh, as God's called them to covenant, we learn about this massive failure in the face of God's outstanding kindness and power. And we're going to watch God restore His people back into covenant with Him. And in the process today, as we look at these chapters, we will have our answer to this question. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, that Your Word is truth. In a world that struggles to, to know what is true and what is stable, you, the God who's created all, who sustains all, have preserved your truth in your word for us. And in the form of story, you communicate to us the most essential things we need to know. And so thank you. But it's more than information. Your word is living and active. And we're meant to experience you through your word. And so I ask you, Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit who dwells among us and in the hearts of all those who belong to you. Would you come in power right now and illumine the word and illumine our minds and hearts that we might experience your truth and experience this answer and have it change us as a result. We need you, Lord. I need you. I so need you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious God and you love to answer prayers like this. So we look forward to how you will do that today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read, uh, start by reading chapter 33, just verses 1 through 17. We'll read some more sections as we go along. This is after the golden calf episode where they have failed miserably. And God says in verse 1, uh, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to, you, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. 
And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall I know that I have favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please. Show me your glory. This story teaches us a core truth that life in everything ultimately is about God's glory. It's all about God's glory. I want us to learn this lesson as we make our way through this passage. And there are three things I want to say in light of what the passage says. First, that God's glory is a must. Second, God's glory is the max. And thirdly, God's glory makes us like Him. So it's a must, a max, and it makes us like Him. So first, God's glory is a must. This section of Scripture that we just read starts with God saying to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. I don't know if you noticed, but flavor to God's uh, words and apparent attitude here there's a little bit of coolness. And it's no longer the people that he brought up, it's the people that you brought up. And it's an abrupt commandment. Depart, get up, go. Get moving. You and the people you brought up. It, there's, there's a difference here. And then it goes on to say, God says, I will send an angel before you and I about these peoples and lead you into the promise, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. So now, not only does God say, you go with your people, but I'm not going. I'm not going with you guys. Because you're stiff-necked, and if I did it for a moment, I would consume you. Because of who you are, and what you've done, and what you'll probably continue to do. And the response here is, the people are stricken. They realize how catastrophic this is for them. And Moses, of course, gets it. The people do as well. They take off their jewelry. They stop wearing their jewelry. Um, and men and women in that culture would have worn earrings and so forth. They take them off because they're mourning and they realize how serious this all is. Now, there, I imagine, and then all of a sudden it starts talking about Moses and his tent. There's a segue immediately right into this tent. And the story of the tent and how Moses would go out to the tent. In the tent, in the cloud, God's presence would descend and he would go and he would talk to God face to face. Notice where that tent is though. It's not in the camp. It's not in the center of the camp. It's not even in the camp at all. It's outside the camp. And it's not just outside the camp. It's far off from the camp. 
picture uh, that you're in the camp and you know Moses walks down the aisle of your tents and he's on his way to the tent meeting and so you come out of the tent and everyone's out there in the, in the street, uh, whatever it is, and they're watching Moses go and they know he's going out to meet with God. But Moses walks quite a ways. Imagine it was probably almost out of view that he enters this tent. It's far off. And you, along with all of Israel, from afar, because you know God is there with Moses. So that's the reality that's going on at the time. But why here? Why now? What is this saying? Well, it's in contrast to what's just been said. God's saying, I'm not going with you. I'm going to send an angel. I'm done with you guys as we had previously arranged things. But God continues to meet with Moses like a friend. And so it's a contrast to highlight the reality that the people are starved of the presence of God at this point. They are not experiencing God's presence. God is not there with them. He's not dwelling in this tent. Remember we talked about this tent that was supposed to be set up in their midst so that God would dwell with them. And that was the whole thing was all about being with God, right? The whole rescue from Egypt ultimately was not to be rescued just to merely wander somewhere or even have prosperity in the promised land. Ultimately, it's to live in the presence of God, to live before God and with God together as God's people shining to the world. And now, there's this catastrophic loss of God's presence. And Moses gets this, and so he pleads with God. He pleads that, that the Lord would relent and says in Verses 15 and 16, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So Moses is saying, God, if you're not going to go with us, let's just forget the whole thing. There's no reason otherwise. Now, it might be good to just pause a little bit and, and think about what is meant by God's presence and what is meant by God's glory, because Moses has prayed, please show me your glory. Glory is a word that actually just means weight, heaviness, significance, importance, gravity, gravitas. That's what glory means. It's the greatness of, of something. And so God's glory is who He is. It's the impact of who He is. And of course, who God is is beyond full comprehension. It, it, it includes His character, who He is at the core, in His holiness, in His wisdom, in His love, in His power, in His eternality, both from time past to time eternal. His dimensions filling the whole universe, and yet the universe does not contain Him. His physical and spiritual power, all these things, all these qualities. And it's, His glory is shown in His creation, by the way. Creation itself is from who He is in His glory. It's an expression of His glory. So everything that is, is actually part of the plan of showing the dimensions of His character and His ways. That's His glory. And there are real physical aspects to His glory as well. And so when they say, we want your presence, they mean we want to experience your glory with us in a way that brings blessing, in a way that brings relationship. So presence connotes glory in the context of intimate relationship with God, living in His favor. That's what is going on here. That's what's meant by His presence. And so they know when He's with them, and they know when He's not. There's physical manifestations here. There likely would have been a spiritual experience as well, a sense of His presence spiritually. And there's impact there. It's real. It's measurable, both physically and, and spiritually. And important to this story and important to this idea of what the meaning of life, it, the meaning of life is the glory of God. And all of life and any meaning... And any 
ground of true faith and action all depend entirely on God's glory. Apart from God, all is empty and meaningless. Look as you can. Search with all your being. Try with all your might. Spend a lifetime thinking and pondering and doing and pursuing and you will find no lasting and reliable and good and true and beautiful purpose in life apart from the glory of God. A world without God and His glory is as empty as possible. There's a name for a place without the presence of God and His goodness to bless. It's called hell. Hell is most fundamentally being cast from God's presence to dwell in emptiness apart from His presence for blessing in His glory. Heaven, most fundamentally, is to be in the presence of God. Heaven would not be heaven without God's glory there. And I can offer you no solace, no stable truth, no comfort, no hope, no wisdom, no meaning. I can offer you none apart from God's glory. Life without God is empty. Ultimately. As I was preparing this, it made me think of uh, all those breakup songs. Um, you know, maybe some of them about life without you. Uh, those, those heart-wrenching songs. There's lots of them, actually. I started to look them up. Um, the Supremes, 1965, My World is Empty Without You. All by myself, Eric Carmen, 75. And this one, Bluer Than Blue by Michael Johnson, I actually <laughs> was listening to this and crying for no reason because it's not true for me. <laughs> but there's this line that says, um, you're the only life that this empty room has ever had. Life without you is going to be bluer than blue. Do you guys recognize that song? I won't sing it. I started, I, I, <laughs> I was crying. Like, how are you doing? Like, I don't know. I'm fine. It's just the song. Since you've been gone, if you like a hard rock version of a breakup song, a more recent song, Let Her Go by Passenger. All these songs, right, they all have this element of emptiness. In this case, it's a couple where the, there's a breakup. And there's this sense of emptiness. And this is the, the same sentiment that Moses is feeling and contemplating for God's people. Life without you, God. Without your presence, we don't want to go. Let's forget the whole thing. If you're not with us, you're the only life that this covenant has. You're the only life that life has. You're the only life that we have. And so he pleads with God and says, please show me your glory. Bluer Than Blue talks about this empty room and we can think of an empty house in the case of a breakup feeling so empty. All those things that are meant to be part of the relationship that you once had now are just symbols of, of the loss of that person. That can be a hard thing to go through. And that's the idea here. That life is empty and the house is, is really, it's God's creation. And all the things that we see around us, as good and glorious as they might be, are ultimately empty and mere reminders of how empty things are without God's glory if we don't have God's glory at the center. Don't settle for empty house living. Don't settle for empty house living. God's creation, His people, the covenant, the old covenant, the new covenant, are meant to be filled with His presence. And without His presence at the center and a vibrant part of it, it's empty. You can have the right forms, the right words, the right church, even do the right things, but without God's glory, it's all empty. Don't settle for empty house living. Moses wouldn't. The people of God here wouldn't. Neither should we. Second, God's glory is the max. Now God answers Moses' question. So let's read about that starting in chapter 33, verse 19. And it says, And he said, I will make 
all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I shall show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. So God grants Moses' request. It's important to note that when Moses pled with God, he pled based on favor. He used the word favor actually five times in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 33. So just some background to hear. It's important to get that. Moses is smart enough to know that his plea before God can't be, God, you owe us. God, we've been really good. We've done everything you said. You need to fulfill your end of the bargain. That's not how he pleads because they haven't been good. And God does not owe them. But he uses this word favor. And, and that word favor actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word used for grace. Really is the same idea. And he uses it five times when he pleads with God in that section. And, he, he, and he's basically saying God Please, you've been gracious to us. Please continue. Grace and favor are things that are granted from the goodness of the giver, not from the merit of the receiver. You don't earn grace. You don't earn favor. It's given to you. And so grace is at the bottom of this covenant. Grace is at the bottom of of all God's covenants, ultimately. The new covenant is based entirely on God's grace, His favor, His kindness to us, unearned, but simply received by us. And so Moses pleads, and God responds graciously. It's amazing. He tells Moses that he will grant his wish, and he will go with his people. He will show his glory among them, and he will give Moses a special revelation of his glory. And we read about how it works. So he puts Moses in a cleft in a rock, and he covers him with his hand. God his spirit, so somehow he covers him. God can manifest anything he wants physically. So somehow Moses is covered as God goes by. So Moses can't see his face. And then once God has gone by, God takes his hand away. And Moses gets to see 
God's, the remnant, really, of what God leaves behind. The glory of God in that. It's kind of like um, if somebody was wearing nice cologne or perfume. Um, my dad actually wore royal lime, just a, a hint of it. And, and if I smell that, it actually brings me right back to my dad, the memories of my dad. So think of someone wearing a nice cologne or a nice perfume, and, and they're in the room, and then they walk out of the room, and it lingers there. And you smell that remnant. That's the idea here, uh, that Moses is seeing the remnant of God, but not the face of God, not the full glory of God. Now, as you heard that, and think about that, it might be like, well, that's kind of stingy. He only gets, a, he only gets like a, a whiff of God's glory. And yet, it's not about being stingy. God says, no one can see my face and live. It's about mercy. Moses can't take the glory of God. He can only deal with a little remnant of that, and we're going to see in the story, just that little remnant that he sees in that way changes him in such a way that he freaks out other people when they see the result of it. So it's a powerful experience for him, just this little remnant of God. God's glory is great. God's glory actually is infinite. God's glory is seen in His creation. But it's only a remnant, a whiff of His glory. 1 Timothy chapter 6 it speaks of God. Paul speaks of God. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, when the Bible says no one can see God and live, it doesn't mean you can't see God at all. But you cannot see the full glory of God and survive it. It's that great. Now, think about this a little bit. God is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. All that is, physically and spiritually, He created the, the universe, all that is, and the universe is both physical and spiritual. He is the creator of it all. Everything that is is created by Him, but He did not create and then step away and go on vacation. He is actively involved in sustaining all things. So all that is only exists by His ongoing sustainment of it. Everything derives its existence and continues its existence from God. That's the whole universe, the, 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 everything that is. Now the sum total of all creation is pretty glorious. If you think about it. 26 orders of magnitude is the size of the universe. Um, so in meters or whatever thing you want to use, 26 orders of magnitude, it's 50 million light years from the center to the edge. So light traveling at the speed of light, the fastest thing there is that we know, takes 50 million years to get to the edge of it. That's how vast it is. And that's outer space. Inner space is equally as vast, even more. 35 orders of magnitude in smallness. So what you see with a telescope, you can also see with a microscope. It extends equally vastly in either direction, full of glory, full of intricate wisdom that will fascinate us forever. This is God's creation, full of power. All of space contains 10 to the 53 kilograms of matter. That's just so big it doesn't even matter. It's just so huge. Um, and the, all the energy that goes with that matter and all the energy of the universe is a billion, billion, billion suns worth of energy in the whole universe. That's just the physical side of creation. All created and sustained by God. And yet, it's only a mere manifestation of a part of His glory. That's how glorious He is. And so I think this makes sense, right? So just the whole universe having all that glory, it doesn't contain Him. It's just a part of His glory. And what happens when you go outside on a day like today, if you have skin like I do, 98 millions of miles away from just an infinitesimal bit of all of His glory and physical creation, for like 30 minutes, you get fried by the sun. That's why Moses can't see the face of God. And that's what the glory of God is like. It is beyond comprehension. It's greater than you can imagine. And creation is meant merely to give us a picture of it that we might look to Him and enjoy all of creation centered on His glory, depending on Him and His glory. It's interesting in the story, 
that there, uh, that God proclaims his name to Moses as he passes by. So there's a, there's a power encounter, and it affects Moses physically and spiritually, but there's a proclamation of truth. God proclaims his word, his truth, that Moses and we might know his glory. That's important to understand. So creation shows us his glory, but his word is meant to be a part of understanding and encountering his glory. And so he passes by and he says, the Lord, the Lord, in your translation. That actually is the covenant name of God. There's good reason to use Lord. That's the New Testament uh, does that. Uh, the uses Lord for the I am, so that's why it's done that way. But it is this word, I am, or Yahweh, or sometimes translated Jehovah. It, it means the eternally ever-existent one, the ultimate reason. The, we talked about this some time back. It's the ultimate, it is what it is, when God says, I am. And so he proclaims his name, the I am, the I am, the, the cause of all things, the center of all things. A God merciful and gracious. I think we, we have this to, to project to, to women. We can follow up. Uh, the I am, the I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, iniquity and transgression and sin, but who be, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this statement actually reverberates throughout Scripture, and it is a sum of who God is. You could preach your whole life as a pastor just on this statement. It's so jam-packed full of truth about God. And notice, not only does he proclaim his name first, he's the I Am, but then he says, a God merciful and gracious. That's how he starts out. He could start out saying, a holy God who does not tolerate sin. And that would be true. But notice how he starts. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who He is. This is who He is at the core. He is a God of mercy and grace. It, it's part of His character. Mercy and grace is not a concession to sinful people merely. It's not because He had to find a way to somehow deal with us messing up. No, He's fundamentally merciful and gracious. He loves to be merciful and gracious. He loves to withhold from us the, the just penalty we deserve and grant to us the blessing we don't deserve. This is who He is. He's merciful and gracious at the core. So when He proclaims His glory, He proclaims His glory by saying, a God merciful and gracious. What good news. What good news for Moses and the people of God at this moment. Having worshipped the golden calf, having failed miserably. What good news for us who at the core are left to ourselves. We're idolaters. We, we want to worship anything but God. What good news for us that God fundamentally loves to be merciful and gracious. He loves to pour out Forgiveness, it, he, it goes on, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He holds to His covenant. He provides for our forgiveness in His covenant, the new covenant through Christ, the blood of the God-man Himself. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations to those who look to Him in faith. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those three words are, are not meant to kind of say, well, there's three types of sin. That's not so much what it is. They overlap. And it's meant to pile up the statement that no matter what sort of sin, no matter how severe it is, God in His character and His goodness loves to forgive such sins. This is who He is. This is how He proclaims Himself to Moses and His people. That's where He starts. Let me ask you, is that where you start? When you think about God and His glory. He is the I Am. The I am, the I am, but he is a God full of mercy and grace. Is this your God? He's a God who loves to forgive. Is this your God? He's a God who's abounding in love and faithfulness. Ever ready to forgive those who come to him. 
who would come by faith and be His covenant people. This is who He is. At the core, this is why He's done what He's done. This is why He sent His Son for us. This is why He's patient with us. This is what He's like towards you, no matter what you might feel. You might feel otherwise, but it isn't otherwise. Now the statement goes on as well. He's not a pushover. He's not like, ah, oh, well, whatever. Forget about it. Anyone can do anything they want. No. For those who don't run to Him for forgiveness, there, there are consequences. If you continue in your sin, in His universe, there are consequences. And those consequences are so severe that, that as you make these lifestyle choices to walk in these things, it will affect not only you, but your children, your grandchildren, and even your great-grandchildren, perhaps. That's how serious sin is. And if you choose to do it on your own and live your own way and not run to Him, that's what you get. He's a God of justice. He's holy. So He's not a pushover, but He's so gracious. And He maintains love to thousands, and the implication is thousands of generations of those who would come to Him. He's ever eager, ever ready to bring blessing to those who run to Him. This is who God is in His glory. And it is so important, it is so important to understand who He is in His glory. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Last week we heard an excellent message from Brendan from James 1, and he talked about how we can be deceived about who God is. James 1, 16-17. You remember, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The course of your life and your eternity will be set by what you think about God. You will not be able to conquer your addictions or overcome your anxiety or deal with depression or find joy or fulfillment or success or you will not be able to stop being jealous or angry. You will not be able to change your bad habits or become a better person until you get a better grip on who God is in His glory. Only God's glory has the power to do these things. Only encountering God's glory will change you and me. And that's the final point. God's glory makes us like Him. So God shows His glory to Moses. He reestablishes His covenant with His people. And if you read through, you'll see that they read, uh, He reiterates key components of the covenant. And that's basically to say, okay, Moses, I'm going to grant your request. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to make myself known. And matter of fact, those two tablets that you smashed, I'm going to rewrite on them, and those will serve you. And then I want you to practice the Sabbath. I want you to practice Passover. I want you to practice these things that I've told you. We're back into the covenant. That's what he's saying by covering those things in the chapter. And that's really important because it's coming off of, off of the golden calf. And if God hadn't been merciful and gracious and responded to Moses in that, they would have been uh, left alone apart from the covenant. And so God reestablishes the fullness of the covenant. And then he, it talks about the results for Moses here and his glory on Moses. So let's pick it up, chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord 
to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses comes down from the mountain after just seeing the remnant of God, after God has passed by, and his face is shining. Now, this is not just like a healthy glow from a nice tan or something. This is powerful shining. Uh, It's brilliant shining. So think, I mean, I don't know, 5,000 watt bulb shining. It's really bright. It's really different. It's really weird for the people. It's not normal kind of, oh, well, you're just glowing right now. No, that's not what's going on. It, it's, it's bright. It's glorious. It's different. And there's a sense of God, I think, with it as well. And so people are kind of freaked out. What's going on? Moses doesn't even know what's going on at first. And, and he has to cover his face with a veil. So he goes in to meet with the Lord. He comes out and tells the people what the Lord said, still shining, and then he covers his face for the rest of the time that he's around the camp. It's interesting, I don't know if you've ever seen artwork or, you know, depicting Moses, but he never has a shiny face and a veil, right? It's always just normal. He looks normal. Um, but for the rest of the time on their journey until the, he goes to be with the Lord, this is what Moses looked like all the time. His face was shining with the glory of God all the time, and he had to be veiled almost all the time. He's been transformed physically and spiritually by his encounter with the glory of God. And it's noticeable. And it's even intimidating. It's so glorious. It isn't, no one would be like, oh, wow, cool. It was like, whoa, that. It's too much glory for, for me to look at, even though it's Moses' face shining, not God's. This is instructive for us in many ways. It's instructive because we see how the glory of God impacts Moses. And we see the importance of encountering and experiencing the glory of God. But there's a direct connection, actually, in the New Testament that teaches us that we are to have the same experience. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. The Apostle Paul is comparing this story to the present experience of God's people. And he says, and we all, speaking to the Corinthians, a weak and struggling Christian church, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is teaching that we all, like Moses, are beholding the glory of God. And this glory is shown in Jesus Christ. So later on, in chapter 4, just after these verses, chapter 4, midway, and then following, it says, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. So light shining in the darkness, light of the gospel, light of the glory of Christ, the glory of God through Jesus. So we see the glory of God by seeing Jesus. And we all experience this. And it transforms us from one degree of glory to another meaning this life and the life to come. His glory transforms us. Beholding His glory changes us. This is so important to understand. and This is the secret of life and it is the secret of Christianity. Beholding God in His glory is what it's all about. And beholding God in His glory is what changes us. Beholding God in His glory as shown through Jesus. Who He is and what He did. For we know, as we read the Word, that Jesus came as God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, a beautiful life, a faithful life of love, 
for his father and for others. He fulfilled all righteousness and then laid down that life voluntarily by dying on the cross in our place. The wages of sin is death. The wages of trying to find our glory in something else besides God. The wages of that is, is death. is to be sent away from God, ultimately to bear His just penalty, His wrath, and eternally separated in emptiness. And yet Jesus, God in the flesh, in His great love for us, and in His glory, laid down His life to die in our place. To take that penalty you and I deserve to pay on Himself. To pay it in full. To expire. To die on the cross shedding His blood, giving up His Spirit for you. Because He wants you to be rescued from your idolatry and sin to find true life like Moses did in beholding the glory of God. And through simple faith in Jesus, turning from your own sin and your own self-effort, saying, Jesus, please save me and please show me Your glory. Lead me in Your ways. We are forgiven and included as God's people. And we behold Him, and we, by the power of the Spirit, in the truth of the Gospel, we shine as well. Now, I can't promise that you're going to shine physically. Maybe. But I can promise you will shine spiritually, and one day you will shine physically and spiritually in God's presence. And in the meantime, beholding Him is how we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next, by the power of the Spirit. As we behold Him through His Word, as we behold Him in the power of the Spirit, we are changed. It's interesting to look in 1 John chapter 2. It says, Beloved, we are children, God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. When He appears and we see Him, we will be transformed by beholding Him. Beholding God in His glory is the key. To rephrase what Tozer said earlier, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me put it this way. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. If you behold God accurately, according to His Word, by the Spirit who is ever eager to illumine His Word. It's an inevitability. You will look more and more like Jesus. You will resemble God in His glory more and more and more. But if you wrongly behold God, you think He's something He isn't, or you set your gaze on something else besides God, it will interrupt this process of transformation and lead you in an entirely different direction. You will resemble, in some reactive way, the thing which you behold. If it is a substance, it will have perhaps positive effects, short term, and negative effects. But it will eventually leave you broken and empty because it does not contain the glory of God. It cannot give you what you need. It cannot fill your life. It will destroy your life. You will look that way because you have beheld the substance. If it's a person, the same effect. No person displays the fullness of the glory of God. Every person has limitations. And so, if you look to someone else, if you're depending on someone else, you will be left broken and empty as well. Only looking at God will transform us. Looking at anything else will destroy us. I, I think of it uh, like the, the mythological monster Medusa. Remember Medusa? This beautiful winged woman with a hair made of snakes. I don't know how she managed that, but She's got hair of snakes. And if you look at Medusa, you turn to stone. You behold Medusa, you turn to stone. Well, to use the metaphor, to look at anything but the Lord will turn you to stone eventually. But in Him is life. And nowadays, I think we live in a time where perhaps more than ever, there are lots of alternative things to behold. There's lots of things to set your gaze on. Lots of temptations to fix your eyes on. And many of those things are not bad necessarily, but when they become the chief focus of your life, they will be bad for you. There's lots of things that are out there, and I think with the COVID pandemic, we're perhaps even more tempted 
to spend a lot of time looking at those things. So things like politics, whether it's the left or the right, and I'm not trying to say whether it's right or wrong, but if you fix your gaze there, you will look at you will look like what you look at. Your phone, your news feed, blogs, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, movie stars, sports, whatever it is, if you fix your gaze there, ultimately it'll transform you. Academics, career, food, vacation, whatever it might be. None of them are meant to replace the glory of God. We are made for the glory of God. Life is about the glory of God. We need the glory of God. It, it is a must. We must have the glory of God as our center, as our focal point. There's nothing better to behold. It's the max. And as we behold the glory of God, it will transform us. Let me close perhaps with some practical steps towards this because you might be thinking, I get it. I want it. How do I do it? And These steps are not for those who don't want this. They're not for those who think, I'd rather look over here than at God. They won't work. They're for the one that realizes, I must have the glory of God. And so these are practical steps, four practical steps, if you could put those up. Very simple. Look to God through your Bible. Exodus 33 and 34, read it today. Read it this week. Look to God through your Bible. Secondly, look to God in prayer. Talk to God. And talk to Him in all the ways that He wants us to talk to Him. He wants us actually to come. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is a wonderful template. Our Father who's in heaven, you're our Father. Hallowed be your name. So I start by saying, you're great, God. You're glorious. You're my everything. You're all that I need. You're my ultimate reward. That's how we start. And then we bring our petitions to Him. So look to God in prayer. Thirdly, look to God in close and regular contact with a good church. So be part of a good church. This church or another one. Be part of the life and mission of that church. Learn to live your life in all of its aspects. And life is full. There's all sorts of ways to, to live and enjoy and promote the glory of God in work and family life and recreation on a beautiful day, but, but all with the Lord at the center. That's the life we're called to. So look to God in connection with the life and mission of a local church. Finally, let others look to God through your life. This isn't just a one-way thing. We look to God and we don't look to others. We look to God and we want others to see God through our lives. And we ask God to use us this way. These four things are simple steps, simple ways to do this. Let me conclude as we prepare to transition to communion. I encourage you just to take a moment right now and ask the Lord, what can I do? What should I do in light of this? If it's all about your glory, if your glory is a must, if it's the max, if it's what makes me different, what can I do in response right now? So let's take a moment to do that, and then uh, Pastor Toby will come up, and the band will come up and transition us to communion.